My interview with Amanda Knox originally aired on February 6th of 2017. It's sort of almost like the anchor episode of the second season. Now, Amanda is engaged to be married, and I couldn't be happier. They're just an amazing couple, she and Chris Robinson. And she's now the host of the Scarlet Letter Reports on Broadly Vice, in which she sits down with famous women to discuss the deeply personal journey of being sexualized, scrutinized, and demonized by the media, and how they've rebuilt their lives after their most personal details have been made public. They're by the name of Scarlet Letter Reports. Amanda is also the host of The Truth About True Crime, a Sundance AMC podcast series. Amanda's like my little sister, and I'm so happy for all the great things that are happening for her. Please listen through to the end because she drops some pearls of wisdom at the end of this episode that really will affect you as they affected me in a very profound way. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's guest is Amanda Knox. I had like this year plan of studying language and studying poetry in mind. Amanda Knox was wrongfully convicted of a crime that happened in Italy in 2007. Amanda Knox's verdict has just been read guilty here, guilty. Just hours ago, 22-year-old college student Amanda Knox finally learned her fate. After 11 hours of deliberations, the verdict was read by the presiding judge. Amanda and Raffaele, guilty of the murder of 21-year-old Meredith Kircher. Her name is Amanda Knox, known for the notorious murder of her British roommate Meredith She served four years in prison and went through numerous trials. And I thought for months, months of imprisonment, that it was just a big misunderstanding and everything would get worked out because the evidence would come back and it would prove that I was innocent. Before she was fully exonerated with DNA evidence in 2015. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's go back in time, as we do on the show. What possessed you to become an exchange student? Like, it's sort of a, it's a brave thing as a young woman. Oh, man. I, I, for me, that it wasn't that brave because my family came from Germany. And so I was always aware that there were other worlds out there where other people were living lives with other cultures and other languages. And I was, I was familiar with that. I had a knack for languages, so I was also aware of that in school. I was interested in what other people were doing outside of my little sphere of knowledge. And I, I mean, I spent two weeks uh, when I was 14 in Japan because I studied Japanese in high school. I went with my family to Germany when I was 14 as well. Um, so it wasn't my first time outside of the country and it definitely wasn't unusual for me. Like my family had been talking about a foreign exchange program since I was in high school. Like my Oma really wanted me to do some high school in Germany. Well, you did like an access tour at the age of 14. <laughs> yeah, <much. laughs> it was, yeah, now that I meant think about it, yeah. It's a coincidence, <laughs> but it is funny looking back on it. Um, so you were somebody who was a, a world traveler at a very young age. And so, yeah, so now it makes sense. And how'd you settle on Italy? Uh, well, I was studying Italian and I was studying German, both of them in college. Um, I wanted to be a linguist, a translator, an interpreter, whatever I could be that had to do with languages because I couldn't explain a creative writing degree to my dad. I couldn't justify it, but I could justify being um, a translator and um, a linguist. And I liked Italian because I studied Latin in middle school and it was just weird enough. It was poetic, and in the meantime, there was a poetry program going on. Um, There's this exchange program with the University of Washington where I was studying with poetry, and, I, and that was located in Rome. And so I thought, okay, this is this brilliant opportunity. I'll go study Italian in Perugia for nine months and then spend the summer in Rome studying poetry. And that was the plan. I had like this year plan of studying language and studying poetry in mind. How long were you there before everything started to unravel? How long at the time of the... Just over a month. 
Right. So, and and things were really looking up, right? You had just fallen in. Well, I don't know if you could call it love or puppy love or whatever it was, but you had a uh, you had a romance going on. Yeah. Well, I I was in classes. I was in this city full of young people who were from all over the world. I made a friend there who was from Kazakhstan, and I had never encountered a person from Kazakhstan before. And she would come over after class, and uh, we would play guitar together. So that was just really cool. Or I went to this one dinner. Um, with other people who were in my class. And um, there was this chef from Japan who was studying Italian cooking there in Rome and Perugia. He was kind of traveling around learning how to cook, and he made a big dinner, and I helped make tiramisu. It was just, it was really cool that to be around so many curious young people and to be living with curious young people. Meredith was one of those. She wasn't in the same school that I was. She was studying at the University of Perugia, and I was studying at the Università per Stranieri, so the, the University for Foreigners, because my Italian wasn't good enough yet to actually go to the regular university. Wow, that was, that, just the way you said that word sort of transported me for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I, yeah, let's... Um, how did you end up, you and Meredith end up finding each other in order to cohabitate? Well, both of us found separately the house that we ended up living in. Um, so Just an ad in the paper? or Not even in the paper. Um, I was wandering around by the Università um, Per Stranieri, and there was a woman, a young woman there. I, I guess she was younger than I am now. Crazy. She seemed so old and mature when I was... 20. And she was putting up a notice, like one of those, you rip the bottom off for a phone number. Sure. And she said that she was, and she could speak English. And she said that she was advertising for this house that was literally right down the street from the university that I was going to go to. And I said, oh my gosh, can I come see it? I'm, I was there with my sister to come visit the city really quickly before I actually moved there. So I visited the house before Meredith had ever arrived in Perugia and already made like a pact with uh, Philomena and, um, and Laura, who were the two Italian young women who were living there, to, to move in as soon as I came back. And then by the time I moved back to the house, Meredith had already moved in. She had also found a notice somehow the same, same way. Seriously, old school, like the little piece of paper ripping yeah, off the thing. And exactly like, not, like you didn't, that. You didn't find it on Craigslist exactly. No, no, so, no. I wouldn't even um, know what that looked like in Perugia. Right. So you end up living with these three other young women, mm -hmm. and things are looking great, right? I mean, what a life you have ahead of you, and what a place to be. Oh, definitely. Um, I... I I was ex like uh, the one thing I can say that disappointed me was I was expecting um, the work, the schoolwork to be a little bit more rigorous than it was. It was very relaxed, easy compared to what I was used to. Um, and I had expected I was going to be learning the language more quickly. I'm expecting that enrollment's going to go up after your description among some slackers <laughs> in the United States. But that's beside the point. So fast forward, and you are now, uh, you, you meet this, uh, this young man, mm -hmm. and you start this uh, little romance. That's, yeah. That's so, it's so charming how it's depicted in the movie. Well, Raphael he, he is seems so charming. charming. Yeah. He is, he is. He's like charming in a boyish way. Um, he's... He's not intimidating in any way. He's he's very sweet and considerate, um, but also kind of just like a, 
a puppy just, you know, just bumbling along. And it's not like we ever had any deep conversations. But then again, we also didn't really speak each other's language very well. So it was very, it was very sweet. It was like holding hands and walking along and him being like, oh, Italian ladies have perfume. You should have perfume. And oh, let me show you this cool market that I've, I've discovered here in Todi. And, you know, stuff like that. It was really, it was just like so stereotypical of like the kind of romance that you find yourself in when you're really young and you're in another country and you you come across this really cool nice sweet different person that who's coming from a completely different culture than you yeah it sounds like a high school relationship in college (laughs) yeah kind of. so um but really really cute so then things go completely haywire and that's one of the things that was I found so powerful in the movie is that there's this juxtaposition right of like you're going along you're just having this sweet wonderful new foreign beautiful experience and then one day you show up uh, well you showed up at your your home and things got a little weird. I mean, so it sort of unravels like a horror movie, actually, right? Yeah, especially especially in the sense that, like, in the horror movie, you don't realize what's going on as you're walking through it, even as, like, the little things add up ominously, right? Like, that was my experience being plunked into a crime scene, basically. I had spent the night over at Raphael's, like, I was doing a lot that one week that we were together and I came home in the morning and um, to take a shower and I came home and the front door was wide open which was odd because to even close the door you had to lock it and that was the habit that Meredith, Laura and Philomena and I were in we we to, we opened the door with our key, and when we closed it, we locked it to keep the door closed because otherwise it would just kind of open. So the door was wide open, and nobody was around. I, I didn't see anyone. I kind of peeked. I went inside, and I called out, and I, I go in to take a shower. And when I go in, I, I call out, like, Laura, Philomena, Meredith, anyone home? And no one was home. And I thought that was odd, but nothing seemed wrong like the the main room that I was walking into was perfectly normal um Philomena's bedroom door was closed um I went into my bedroom and undressed went to the shower and that's when I noticed spots of blood in the bathroom but they weren't a lot it was just eerie enough to be like that's weird on top of the door being open but what was going on in my mind was oh maybe someone like cut themselves and then like ran out to go get a bandage or maybe someone I mean it could also have been in my like it could also have been like you know when you brush your teeth and if you haven't flossed in a while you'll like bleed from your mouth when you're like you know it wasn't a lot. It wasn't like so much that I thought something was. A but it was, it was in the sink, though. It was in the sink. Right. So it could have been yeah, anything. It could have been anything, and I didn't immediately jump to the conclusion that somebody had been devastatingly hurt or something bad had happened. I just thought it was weird, 
And so I took my shower and I stepped out of the shower and onto the bath mat and I noticed that there was a larger splotch of blood on the bath mat. And I thought, okay, that's more suspicious, but I still didn't know what to make of it. I went into my room, I got dressed, I went and blew dry my hair in um, the other bathroom that we had because that's where the hair dryer was. And when I was in there, I noticed that the toilet hadn't been flushed. There was feces in the toilet. And that, on top of everything else, just struck me like something, like I got the creepy feeling that someone is the, was in the house with me who shouldn't be there. Because Laura and Philomena were really were clean freaks and they wouldn't forget to flush the toilet and like that on top of everything else like maybe if, even if it was just that and everything else is normal the door was closed I wouldn't have thought creepy feeling but that on top of everything else gave me a creepy feeling and so I immediately booked it back to Raphael's and I wasn't sure what to tell him like uh, that some weird things were at my house but what what could he say um, but I ended up talking to him and he said, oh, you should call your roommates and see what's going on. Maybe something happened with them. And I called Laura and she was, um, I don't remember if she picked up or not, but she was not even in the city. She was away in Rome. Philomena picked up and she had been at her boyfriend's and Meredith did not pick up. Her phone just rang and rang. And I, I tried both of her uh, phone numbers. She had an Italian phone number and a British phone number and it didn't answer. So I told, like our, my and Raphael's plan had been to just go you know, away for the weekend. But I wanted him to come take a look at what was going on in my house with me because I, I needed to figure out what was going on. Philomena said she was going to come home. We were all going to take a look at it, see what was going on. She thought that maybe there had been a break-in. And so I went, considering that the door was open, right? And so I went back with Raphael and we took a more scrutinous look at the house. We opened up Philomena's bedroom and... Philomena's bedroom was the one that had been broken into. There was, her window was broken, um, there was glass all over the floor, and um, there was, you know, it was, it was a bit of a mess, like there was a jumble of clothing. I didn't see if there was anything, like I looked to see if there was anything stolen of value because if it was a break-in, you'd think that there would be something stolen. But her camera was there, her computer was there, um, like our stereo was still in the house, the TV was still in the house. I went to my bedroom, my computer was there. And so I thought, what the heck happened? Like, where, what did this person steal if they broke in? And then by that time, you know, Raphael and I sort of moved around the house some more, noticed that Laura's room was totally fine, untouched, pristine. And Meredith's room was locked, which was unusual because the only time that I had ever encountered her door being locked was either she was out of town or she had just gotten out of the shower and like closed the door and locked it before she got changed and, and then came out again. And I asked Raphael to try to break it down because I knocked on the door and Meredith didn't answer. I knocked louder and Meredith didn't answer. And the fact that she wasn't answering her phone, like I was worried maybe something happened. So I asked Raphael to try to break down this door and he kicked at it and he kicked at it, but he couldn't kick it down. 
So we called the cops. In the meantime, Philomena came home. She was freaking out hysterically in Italian. Police showed up with this, this phone that belonged to Meredith. And they said that they had found this phone in a garden that was a little bit like down the road. And um, that's weird. Yeah. So the, her phone is in the middle of some yard down the road. We can't find her. Her door's locked. There's like crazy things going on in the house. And so finally, um, Philomena says to the cops, like, kick down their door. And Philomena's there with her boyfriend and their two friends because they were off doing things together. And so they all came there. And the police said, well, we don't have the authority to kick in doors. Like, we're only, you know, we're not criminal people. We're just, we're just here to, like, for these phone issues. They weren't even, like, criminal investigator cops, right? They were just regular Joe Schmo on the block cops who were, like, trying to figure out whose lost phone this was. Why were they even looking for it? That's the strange part of this. Why story. were they looking for her phone? Yeah. Because it was ringing. I had been calling it and it was ringing and the person whose yard it was found in heard the ringing and discovered the, um, like found the phone in the yard and then called the cops saying, hey, there's this phone in my yard. Can you find out who this belongs to? So it's it's pretty weird though that they show up with the phone and then they don't right? kick down the door. Okay, so now what? Right? So, well, and indeed, like, what's interesting is they showed up, and I thought they had showed up because me and Raphael had called them and said, like, hey, there, there's this break-in in our house. But they apparently, yeah. yeah, but these cops weren't coming for that. They had no idea what we were talking about. The reason they came was because of the phone. And they knew that the phone was connected to the house because it was Meredith's phone, and... Meredith was okay, convoluted. Meredith was using a SIM card that belonged to Philomena, and Philomena's name was registered with the house. So they had discovered the SIM card and traced it back to the house. So they showed up for entirely different reasons, and I had assumed they showed up because of a break-in. So these two just lay cops show up with this phone, and I'm assuming that they're there because of the break-in, but in fact they are not. So they say, well, we don't have the authority to kick down this door, and Philomena says, bullshit, kick kick down this door so they she and her friends kick down this door with the cops that's Meredith's bedroom door and I mean Philomena screamed and um the police yelled out 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 everyone get out of the house and there was this big just shuffle and everyone like I had no idea what was going on I was pushed out of the house oh so you couldn't else. see into the bedroom no no I was but in you the just, kitchen you just know there's pandemonium breaking there's up there's pandemonium know why. and everyone's screaming in Italian and so I'm trying to like keep track of everything and I'm asking Raphael to like tell me what everyone's saying because you know it's one thing to have someone speak to you slowly and calmly in Italian and another one to have them just like screaming hysterically out loud at everyone's talking over each other and so Raphael was like slow sort of just trying to translate for me what was going on. I was pushed out of the house. And um, and by then, or then some more cops arrived. I think the, the, the phone police guys called in for backup. And I, I mean, I don't even know who all these people were that were showing up to my house. All I knew was that suddenly I didn't have a house anymore. I wasn't allowed to go inside. And I was just standing outside thinking, what did they see in Meredith's room? Like, did they see her? Did they see someone else? Like, and you know, 
you can think, okay, maybe maybe I should have known that it that it was obviously going to be Meredith in there. But like by the way that Philomena was screaming, like she was just saying, a foot, a foot, a foot, un piede, un piede, un piede. And I thought that maybe there was like a severed foot in there. Like I had no idea what was going on. And then like I kept overhearing little bits and pieces, something that had to do with the the wardrobe, something that had to do with the the blanket of her bed. And eventually what I pieced uh, and what Raphael was able to really piece together for me was that Philomena, her boyfriend and her friends, and this one cop had kicked down the door and seen the crime scene, which was um, Meredith's body was lying on the ground, um, covered in a blanket, and her foot was sticking out from beneath the blanket. That's why the foot, yeah. Yeah, and there was blood everywhere. I mean, there was blood on the walls, there was blood all over the floor, there was blood on the wardrobe. So there was, there was, and like, it wasn't just like, there was like splatters of blood and there was like fingerprints in blood. It was just this terrible, horrific crime scene that showed absolutely struggle and, and, uh, ugh. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I never had to see that in person. The first time I ever did see that was pictures that my lawyer showed me um, to prepare me for court when we were going to have to sit there and go through all the pictures of the crime scene and the pictures of the autopsy. And right, so, and let's and let's let's go to that, but make a stop on the way at the time of the arrest. Because it's odd, I mean, you, there were other people who could have been targeted. There were some very obvious signs, right? There was a known burglar in the neighborhood. Um, had the cops been maybe, let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say had they been more experienced. But let's face it, it's really a question of competency. Um, they were also trigger happy, I think. Um, there was a lot of, like, automatically there were... Um, so, okay, so what did they have in front of them? When let's, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the police officers as they come to this place. They have, they have um, an, a hysterical roommate, a roommate who doesn't really understand what's going on and is talking to her boyfriend all the time in English. Um, they, they have a body out of nowhere. They have some phones that were found a little bit away. It's a gruesome crime scene. It looks like a break-in. And and what they had, you know, in the in the hours following was just all of us standing around outside waiting to hear what happened, and then bringing us to to the police office to ask us and question us. Basically, what they they had to go on was there's this horrible thing, and all we have are people to look at because they they. Sure, they were analyzing the crime scene. Um, they had, you know, people in their their suits going in and out, checking out everything. But like at that point, they were playing the detectives in terms of like, okay, let's try to solve this in forty eight hours type of thing, where you just study the characters of the people who are around you, and something about me striked them as odd. They thought that my emotions didn't match up to what they should have been. Either I cried too much or I cried too little. 
I I said the wrong thing. I was doing the wrong thing. It, they thought that I was weird. I was being, you know, cuddled by my boyfriend who was trying to comfort me. All of it they they just felt was inappropriate and that made me suspicious. We're better equipped to make, you know, decisions about guilt and innocence, but we are also just flawed human beings who should remember that when we're drawing conclusions about people and we shouldn't rely so heavily on initial impressions because those don't actually tell us any relevant information. So in the meantime, they come along and eventually, and it doesn't take that long, right? And we see this again and again, where you have a small community, a very high profile crime, mm-hmm. and a lot of pressure on the police to solve it. And then in your case, there was the added pressure of the press gets a hold of this mm-hmm. and things get really crazy I yeah. mean, in a way that the world hadn't seen. For the press in both America and Italy, it wasn't just the story of the year, it was the story of the century. And then they have to suddenly like rise to the occasion, which is this one that they're not experienced and they're not equipped to do. You know, it, it was kind of like when you look back at them going through the crime scene and like looking through everything, it's it looks a little bit like kids who are playing pretend. They're pretending to be forensic experts moving through a space and like gathering evidence, but you know, trying to like swab a splotch of blood, but like swabbing the whole sink to get that splotch of blood, or like passing around evidence like, you know, candy. It's 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 like they were kids pretending to be doing their job it was and and, I mean I I know that one of the issues with the criminal justice system is lack of resources and lack of training and it would be nice if when faced with those situations when you know that you can't rise to the occasion in the way that you would you need to you at the very least admit it or ask for help do something in this case, the Perugia police were wanting to prove themselves to the world because suddenly the world was looking at them and they were very proud and they were... Perugia being a city that supported itself on tourism, they couldn't afford to have some foreign exchange student be murdered without Perugia being able to rise to the occasion and answer the call of duty. And they just weren't able to do that. They were faking it, trying to make it, and they couldn't make it. You know, an improper forensics uh, is sadly, tragically common. It's the second leading cause of wrongful convictions in the United States. So I don't want to make this sound like this was an Italian problem. This is a worldwide problem. And part of it is the training, as you just said. I mean, we need better standards for training our forensic analysts and experts. And anyone who saw Making a Murderer saw that as well. I mean, it's really... We want to believe that these people are scientists with fantastic backgrounds, and we'd like to believe that they're perfect. And they have principles and standards. That would be good, too. And there are a lot of very good forensic scientists out there, but the bad ones are capable of inflicting incredible amounts of damage. And we've seen some who are really bad actors who do it over and over again until they're eventually caught, and then all these cases have to be unraveled at taxpayer expense. And, of course, the human tragedy is that so many people get wrongfully convicted as a result. You were one of them. 
although over there. But I do want to highlight the fact that it happens in America with alarming frequency. Oh, yeah. So you get arrested mm-hmm. and, and thrust into this world you have no understanding of, right, in, in so many ways, including the, the language barrier and everything else. And now what, what happens? Like what's going through your mind and how did it get to trial? And then besides, you know, the whole issue of the coercive interrogation that authors a false confession, speeding past that because I've talked about that often, finding myself in a prison environment was incredibly surreal and confusing. Um, I had been given the impression initially that I was there for my own protection. So they, they, the police told me that I was going to the prison because that was the safe place for me. I thought I was a witness to the case, and I had no idea what was happening to me. I didn't realize that I had been accused of her murder. You know, And it sounds so dumb. Like It sounds dumb. Like I had handcuffs on me, and they put me in prison. How could I not realize what was going on? But like the idea that I would be accused of a murder I didn't commit was so foreign to me that I was making every excuse in my mind to explain what was happening to me that wasn't exactly what was happening to me, which was the most absurd thing that I could possibly imagine. Like it wasn't it wasn't in my radar to be wrongfully convicted of something that I didn't do, especially something so brutal and terrible as the murder of my roommate. Like this I I I was blaming myself for like seeming confusing to people. I was under the impression that I was a witness. And then when it was finally brought to my attention that I was actually accused of murder, I thought that there was this big mistake. I asked, I, I asked to be interrogated again because I was like, no, I, I, you misunderstood me. It was my fault. I'm sorry. Like I, I was so young and, and, naive and idealistic and idealistic and manipulable like i i thought that i was on the side of the police and there was just this big misunderstanding and i thought for months months of imprisonment that it was just a big misunderstanding and everything would get worked out because the evidence would come back and it would prove that i was innocent and like i spent 8 months like that and um I spent eight months hoping I was just, I was going to go home. And, um, and that didn't happen. It, it took them eight months to formally charge me. And with, you know, so I would, the way that they do it in Italy is they can arrest you and then they can continue their investigation to actually come up with charges against you. And you're so, held without bail. And I'm held without bail, yes. So I was in prison for eight months without formal charges. And then finally those were laid down on me. And of course, I, I, what's crazy is that, you know, as everything kept getting worse and worse and worse, I kept hoping, like my hopes kept rising that things would finally turn out in the end because it couldn't keep getting this bad. It couldn't, like it was just impossible. It didn't make sense why this would be happening to me. And um, and I kept thinking that it's, it's going to, f- figure itself out in the end, even if it's not figuring itself out now, even if it's taking months and the police just don't get it, like a a jury of my reasonable peers are going to see how ridiculous this is and they're going to put a stop to it. And the closer we get to my conviction, the the more I thought I was going to go home. 
And, um, you know, it took, I was in prison for two years prior to my conviction, and then I was convicted. And that changed everything. That was when I, I finally had to face my reality with, with full awareness of what had happened and what was going to happen to me. And I was, um, my mom didn't like the way that I started writing letters. Um, she thought that I was depressed. And, it, you know, it could, it could be that is true. It is true that after a while, especially post my conviction, um, the world was just sad because you know that life isn't fair. Everyone tells you that. But you never think that you're going to be that person with that unfair story that that you're the you're that one person and you know I'm I'm not the only person in history who's ever had this happen to them like there have been horrible things throughout history that human beings have done to one another and you just you never think that you're going to be that witch who's going to be burned or you know the or ugh. Sure. I mean, I, I think everybody can relate to that because, you know, and people have varying degrees. Everyone's had some experience where they were like, wait, why me? But yours just happens to be very extreme. And then they had a number of inconvenient issues, right? I mean, they forget for a second the fact that they were overlooking the obvious suspect, who was this guy who they, who they knew had been burglarizing, and this was a burglary, yeah. homes in the neighborhood, Ultimately, of course, he was convicted, and right. Well, he—that's—that's that's the th the frustrating thing about my case, and that I think is a repetition of things that happen in wrongful convictions cases, where a prosecution gets invested in a theory, and they're so invested in that theory that they're willing to fudge, distort, and completely ignore truthful elements in order to sustain that theory. So in my case, the prosecutor was so invested and the police were so invested in my guilt that they let off the the person who actually did it, whose blood, whose DNA was everywhere inside Meredith's body, inside her purse, all over the crime scene, his fingerprints in her blood, all over the crime scene. They let him off as not guilty of the murderer they have him guilty of raping her and they they didn't find him that's why he got a lower sentence is because it was more worth it to them to let him the actual murderer off you know on a lesser charge so that they could sustain their theory of me and in addition to that to sustain that theory they had to ignore like we were talking about forensic evidence and how yes in my case there was bad forensic evidence because you know there was contamination that was the issue with the bra clasp there was this knife where like they they said there was Meredith's DNA on it but it, there wasn't in the end but even more than that like the I, I understand that people are sort of fascinated by those elements because, you know, maybe there's, you know, smoking gun elements. But really, like, the smoking gun element in this case is one that the police completely ignored, which is whose DNA was in the crime scene. Meredith's and Rudy Gaudet's, the actual killer. That's, That's it. it. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's impossible for a reasonable person, even if you don't have a background in in investigations or anything else, right, to rationalize the fact that your DNA wasn't there. Well, they came up with all the excuses, like, oh, she was able to clean it up, which... Is laughable. Which is laughable. It's it's impossible. You can't just look around this room that we are in right now, and I'm like, okay, well, your DNA is right there, so I'm gonna leave that, and my DNA is right there. Like, DNA is invisible. It's you can't identify like, oh, that you know, sweat stain is from me versus this sweat stain is from you. You can't do that. It is physically impossible. 
Also, to even like move around a crime scene without leaving traces of yourself, unless you're in a in one of those suits. But, but even suit, that, yeah. yeah but even that, like, it's no guarantee. You have to be very if if you. The reason why forensic experts have to move around in a crime scene in those suits is because it's so easy to contaminate a crime scene, and the prosecution, because they were so invested in the idea of my guilt, they were so invested in it that they just had to believe that it was possible for me to have done this, to have cleaned up all trace of me, connecting me to the crime. Right, which would be, even if you had endless amounts of time, resources, the most uh, sophisticated equipment, which of and course in Peru would be, and <laughs> magic goggles, and and you, you would still have to have also you'd, you'd have to be some combination of a fairy and an alien yes. in order to float in there. Yes, avoid leaving any traces, clean it up without leaving any traces as yeah. well, right? So you would have had to either commit the murder in a hazmat suit and uh, and have and, and have sort of been floating above, right? Uh, and or come back with your team of experts from some laboratory mm-hmm. who would have been able to um, you know mad, you know scrubbed part of, I don't know it's all too crazy and also even... without leaving traces of cleaning because of course <laughs> you can't leave traces of having cleaned <laughs> so so that's another like, thing yeah like, where's, the, where's the bleach yeah where's no whatever? but the, by Ammonia. god she what, did it what, by god do you have some Febreze in there like what yeah, the hell I mean it's really it's, pretty uh, I mean it, we can laugh about it right now but like that was legit and like that happens all the time the kinds of ways that bad investigators contort their minds in order to shape it around an idea instead of allowing the context of the situation of relevant information to inform them that that is a devastating factor in wrongful convictions. And it's one that's relevant in my case. It's one that's relevant in most cases where you're just either going out of your way to not find any other evidence that's relevant to the case. Or bury it. Or bury it. Or you're just doing incredible mental gymnastics to justify what you want to justify instead of what you can. Innocence Project research has shown that many forensics techniques, such as hair microscopy, bite mark comparisons, firearm and tool mark analysis, and shoe print comparisons, have not been subjected to sufficient scientific evaluation and have resulted, time and time again, in tragic errors. No, in your case, uh, has things in common with the, the Central Park 5 case mm-hmm. as well, right? Another super high-profile case where the DNA evidence was available and mm-hmm. was hidden and lied about and, and it's covered all about up. about story, and- right? Like, it's all about a story where the idea of, well, I mean, you saw the, the documentary, so you saw how Nick Pisa was all like, girl-on-girl girl crime, blah, blah, blah. Like, people were just eating up the idea of some femme fatale version of me that was able uh, to hypnotize two guys into doing my bidding and then commit murder and then somehow criminally mastermindedly get away with it. So you were now this crazed sex killer, except for you weren't gay and you weren't a killer at all. Nope. You, you weren't nope. a violent person whatsoever. Nope. Never so. had any criminal problems ever. Never had any behavioral problems ever. It was just an interesting story. 
And I think that's what's most scary that I've learned about the criminal justice system, at least right now, is that often enough, what compels is not the facts, what compels is the story. And if the defense's story is a story that we've heard before, where there's a burglar who breaks in, take it, takes advantage of the person who was home, and then runs away from the country, that, despite the fact that that's what the evidence is pointing to, is not the story that compels. It's not the story that sells. And it's not the story that ends up being stamped with everyone's approval. And that is the scariest thing about the criminal justice system where it's treated like in this like really morbid way like entertainment and what counts is what compels what you know stimulates our most base instincts in relation to other people like it's just it's so weird how we think there's this like this upstanding institution that has so many you know safeguards against that kind of thing against authorities taking advantage of their position and against you know people being found guilty for things where there's no evidence of that like it still comes down to people getting riled up about something and whether or not it's fake news, and if the fake news is compelling enough, and if you hear it enough, if, and if it's if everyone's talking about it in this specific way enough, then that becomes the truth, and and that ends up defining my life unless I can somehow compel you otherwise. Then that's crazy. I shouldn't have to compel anyone. I'm just a regular person walking around in this world and had this thing dropped on me. And the ability for an authority to drop that kind of devastation on your life should be justified. And so often it is. And, and very good prosecutors won't go after someone unless they have very good reason to. But other people have other intentions and they have other agendas. And, and they're proud and they're flawed and they don't want to admit it. So back to you, you end up in prison, case gets overturned on appeal, you get reconvicted. Yeah. I mean, this it, this is, but in the meanwhile, you're just sort of languishing, is probably a nice way to put it, in an Italian prison yeah. for a crime you didn't commit. Mm -hmm. And I was so touched to hear you say how you maintained this idealistic notion that if you just told the truth, eventually people would get it. They would they would want to not persecute you if you just told them the truth. I mean, so here I'm about to, like, break your heart. I held that belief, that idealistic belief, up until my conviction. And then I thought, oh, wow, this is the type of world. Oh, yeah, okay, this is the type of world where I can be innocent but still be convicted and still have my life completely redefined by something I didn't do. And that could be the rest of my life. That could be my life. I could be that person. And, you know, I faced another two years in prison with the prospect of being that person, of living my, the rest of my life in prison, no matter how innocent I said I was. That didn't mean that I was ever going to say, fine, I did it. Like, that's, that was never going to come out of me because, like, that was absurd and offensive and it was offensive to Meredith's memory and it was offensive to everything that, every principle that I had in myself. But... I also recognize that this world is one in which 
sometimes we humans make mistakes in relation to each other. And I could have been one of those who just got forgotten. And I did not know if I was ever going to get out of it. I had to wrap my mind around the idea and come to peace with the idea that I was just going to live my life in prison for something that I didn't do, no matter what I said. And, you know, even after everything, even after I was acquitted and I was freed, I thought, oh, well, okay, wow, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, there are plenty of people who are in my situation who never got out. And then I had to come to peace with the idea that, okay, so I am free and I do get to have my life back. It's just, you know, I'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life. And I'm just going to have to come to peace with that. And, you know, like when the Twitter trolls just roll in every day and like reaffirm that for you, I just had to come to peace with that. And then, you know, the documentary comes out and suddenly people who just like, really quickly drew conclusions about me that suggested that I was guilty as soon as they saw that and saw that the that I'm a real person for one thing and that the case was more complex than what they thought suddenly they started vocalizing that they were sorry like people were saying sorry to me for like jumping to conclusions about me and I never expected that to happen like I I would I had come to peace with the idea that unless you met me you probably hated me and as soon as I walk into a room, there's a doppelganger version of myself that's preceded me that you're all judging prior to me even entering that room. And I'm going to have to relate to that doppelganger version of myself before I'm ever going to be able to interact with you as a person. And I am continually finding, like I'm the type of person who doesn't believe something unless I like I see it and I can, and there's proof of it. And so I am finding proof I mean, I believe that human beings are good deep down, and I think that we're smart deep down. And so I, I feel like as soon as we come face to face with each other, we are we're able to recognize each other's humanity. Um, what I am finding is, with great joy is that some people don't even need to see me face to face in order to realize that I'm a human being. And that means the world to me because I had come to peace with the idea that that wasn't going to be my reality. That was just going to be my fate to be that girl that people suspected forever and didn't really think of as a person and judged not as a person. So I don't know. I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't like break your heart or like skew your understanding of what kind of person I am. But I'm no, just practical. No. It'd be but nice if I could say like, no, I knew in the end that it was going to work out. But the sad thing is you don't. Anyone who's wrongfully convicted doesn't know if it's going to work out for them. And it sucks. And it's sad. And your world is sad. And that's just the reality of it. And it takes people like you and people like me and people like our listeners to care about that situation enough to do something about it. Because it's not just going to work itself out. It doesn't work itself out. People undo their mistakes. And it requires people to do it. And, and nobody wins when a wrongful conviction occurs because there's no favor there to the victim or the victim's family or to society, uh, which in many cases allows the, well, in almost all cases, allows the actual perpetrator to roam free Absolutely. and commit new atrocities. And of course, then there's the very human toll on people like yourself. So I want to wrap up mm -hmm. by talking about Amanda now. Now it's wonderful because I'm no longer being hunted down by some 
big, you know, crazy legal authority that's an entire country. Like, I'm no longer having to deal with that kind of pressure in my life. And I can actually look forward as opposed to just sort of, like, be really present and be constantly aware of, like, what's coming at me. I can actually just, like, breathe look forward and kind of put myself out there. I'm, I'm writing a lot. I'm coming up with these creative projects to try to, to try to, you know, share my ideas with the world. And I'm here talking to you and, and I'm going out of my way to vocalize my thoughts and experiences in ways that I didn't feel like I was able to before because I wasn't in a position of safety or, or ability even. I, I thought for the longest time that my life was going to be one where I had to live in the shadows and cower, and that was going to be my life. And that's not what's happening to me now. And I'm so grateful for that because I hated the idea that somehow I had to pay with my life for this thing that I didn't do, for the mistakes that the prosecution make, for the, the terrible crime that Rudy Gade committed. Like somehow I had to pay with my life for that. And, like, people told me all the time, like, oh, you should just change your name so you don't have to deal with it. And eventually, you know, 10 years from now, you're not going to look the same, so it's not going to be different. And it's like, you know what? No. There's nothing wrong with being Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox didn't do anything. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm just fine. And, in fact, if you just gave me the chance to be a person, it, you would see that, too. So... I, I didn't like the idea of like my myself being compromised somehow by something that had nothing to do with me, and um, and instead you know I've I've now been able to like embrace the fact that this happened to me and that it's a part of me, but it's not you know the thing that defines me. The thing that defines me is how I've reacted to it, and um, and that feels wonderful. And like I'm I. I feel recognized in a way that I never imagined that I was going to feel. And it's so, I'm so grateful. Like, I'm so grateful that people are like seeing me as a human being and, and seeing what I went through and caring about it. Like no one had to do that. No one had to care about me. And, and they, and they do. And that means the world to me. Um, and I just, I just want other people to feel that, you know? Well, I can tell you that it's it's quite extraordinary just being around you and soaking up the sort of energy that you put out there because yeah. it's so positive and it's so healing and it's been like I said an, a humbling experience for me to be able to have you on the show now twice <laughs> and I look forward to watching you continue to grow and heal and excel Oh, and, um, you know, and I'm, I know we'll be seeing each other again at various events and uh, we will both continue to fight for justice because that's what we're here for. Deal. You've been listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom and our guest, the amazing, the one and only. No. Amanda Knox. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis, 
The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.